Hello and welcome to the Blockade Runner podcast number 195. My name is John. Joining me today is Ryan. What's up, Ryan? Hey, good morning. Yeah, good morning. And we are uh, happy and excited and grateful to say good evening to uh, uh, returning guest Dave, who is in Japan and uh, joining us to talk about Star Wars Visions today. So uh, Dave, welcome back and thanks for being here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess I should say uh, Ohio gozaimasu and konbanwa. Konbanwa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost middle of the night, but yeah, konbanwa yeah. works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I don't know what's going on, but that's why we, that's why I'm happy to have uh, Ryan here for sure, as always, but also Dave, because you guys are going to be my uh, guides through this discussion of Star Wars Visions, um, which came out in the last uh, two weeks uh, here, and we've all watched all of the uh, the short films of Star Wars Visions. Uh, I absolutely loved every one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Well, actually, I absolutely loved all of them except for one, which I really liked a lot. But I, I don't know if I really, <laughs> really loved one of them. But I liked it. I liked Ooh, it. So interesting. Yeah, controversy. But um, yeah. no, I, 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 I totally, absolutely like loved Star Wars Visions. Um, I'm assuming that you guys did too. I'm really excited to talk about it. But um, I definitely do feel like I have uh, by far the least um, understanding uh, and experience with uh, anime and Japanese culture and Japan. And uh, you guys both have uh, a lot of knowledge about those things. Um, So um, it's going to be an excellent conversation, I know. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into it. So I think like we can start by just discussing uh, sort of initial like reactions to Star Wars Visions as an anthology as a whole, how you guys felt about it, what your experience was with it. And then we'll get into discussing uh, each of these short uh, films individually, I think. Um, so, Dave, what was your what was your kind of initial reaction to Star Wars Visions here in terms of like watching it and, and, and how did you feel about it as an anthology and and that sort of thing? I, I just I know I'm probably pre predisposed to love it considering that i mean i've loved anime since i was a teenager and i've lived over a third of my life in japan and each one i mean i was smiling the entire time (laughs) as i was watching Mm -hmm. it and just no dis no no sense of disappointment no oh i wish they'd done more of this i mean just really really thought they knocked it out of the park and uh I, I would not be disappointed if going forward Star Wars did more of this. I really hope that they um, let these Japanese studios continue doing stuff like this and really enlist their services to like carry Star Wars stories forward. I mean, just watching some of these, I was thinking, man, they perfect for like High Republic type stuff. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. 10 i mean if we're gonna go spinal tap i would say this goes to 11 (laughs) (laughs) nice nice um yeah and ryan i'm i'm definitely uh you know want to hear what your initial reaction is too but i have to say real quick um two things number one i am not really predisposed to like this i mean i have no like i i enjoy you know anime or like i'm not like i don't have any uh 
I have positive feelings towards it, but I have very little experience with it. You know what I mean? So it's just like not like tailor made for me. And so my reaction was very much like, oh, wow, like I'm loving this even more. I knew I'd like it, but I'm like loving it even more than I expected I would. Um, And the other thing I wanted to say there, uh, Dave, in response to like the idea that like you, you hope they do more of this, I, and this is maybe more of an end of the show comment, I guess, but I was feeling multiple times in multiple, uh, short films, episodes, whatever you want to call it. Um, as they were concluding, I thought, wow, this is just the beginning of this story, or this really feels like they're intentionally leaving the door open to maybe return to these things. Um, unless this is like, something like common in anime and i'm i'm (laughs) i don't get it i i feel like uh you know i i I have that thought a lot too like ooh, maybe i'm just not getting it but to me it just felt like wow these are really um they knew they had something here really special and uh it's not necessarily intended to be a one and done sort of thing so um i'm hoping that we're going to see more of some of these stories and and i I would love for Star Wars Visions to be a recurring anthology series on Disney Plus rather than just happen in the one time. Uh, Ryan, sorry, what, what, what is, uh, how did you feel about Visions here, Old Sport? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, similar to Dave, like I have loved anime since, uh, since I guess like I was a, a, a preteen. Um, I, really started getting into anime um you know when my local comic shop got it when i was in middle school and i would pick up stuff like akira and devil man um and some of those like early vhs tapes and it was just like it was a game changer because it was like oh hey this is the stuff i like in the you know nintendo games and sega genesis games i'm playing uh, but now I'm like making this connection that, oh, this stuff all comes from the same country <laughs> and like this, this style of art and action and storytelling, like it's all coming from the same place. It's coming from Japan. And like, these are these things that I really like, but I could never really quite put my finger on it. So yeah, like I've, you know, I've loved anime for a very long time. I've, kind of fallen out of it um you know as i've gotten older like i think when i was um a teenager was when i kind of loved it the most and then like you know as i got into my 20s it kind of started tapering off and then in my 30s like i was kind of just watching the big stuff and you know the ghibli films the um gynax stuff and then uh revisiting um older things that you know i had nostalgia for at that point so i'm definitely not up on like i i don't watch like any current anime seasons like um i saw the demon slayer movie love that but uh that's excellent uh, otherwise i'm not really like on top of anime but like it's always going to you know be something very special to me um and something like i'm always always down for even though i don't like really seek out a lot of the new stuff um so yeah i was i was definitely going to like this um i ended up loving it um it kind of you know exceeded my uh my expectations which were pretty high um and yeah i'm stoked to actually kind of get into the why of all that here today with you guys. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's funny because like anime is really popular right now with uh, with high school students and with younger people um, mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think it was like when we were in high school. Um, and part of that has got to be access, right? Because it's so much easier to access. Uh, yes. much easier to access <laughs> anime now than it was. I remember at the time, like I was never really uh, into anime in high school. Probably the only thing I saw was like Akira and. Uh, Oh man, there was one other like very popular one that I remember watching at a sleepover once, but like, you know, if you, it was like $40 for a VHS tape, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were That's expensive. like pretty much what, yeah, you, you really couldn't rent them very much either. At least where you we were, share, Ryan. You share them with your friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Bootleg f- fan sub tape trading. It was, yep. it was all happening back then. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, also like on the on the note of um, exceeding expectations and things like that, like um, you know the trailers and like the 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 promotional stuff for Visions. Um, I, I don't know it 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 all looked good, but seeing it like all kind of like thrown together, you know, um, I don't think I was like able to get a sense of. I don't know. It was just maybe like sensory overload or too much going on, you know, and specifically I'm thinking of the, uh, the umbrella lightsaber type thing. It was like in the context of that trailer, there were a lot of moments like that where it was like, here's this like kind of wild thing for star Wars and something you're not expecting. It was like, boom, 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 just throwing it all at you. And, uh, like for me, it was, it, I was excited. I loved the trailer. It got me hyped, you know, whatever, but like seeing this stuff in the context of the actual, you know, short films themselves is just, um, man, it was so much cooler and like even more satisfying than I expected from just the promotional stuff. So yeah, uh, I just have to echo, you know, the fact that it, it definitely exceeded my expectations and, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled with it. Um, but Ryan, like you said, let's, let's get into it, right? Let's start Mm -hmm. talking about some of the, uh, the specific episodes. So we'll start with, um, maybe the most, uh, distinctive looking and the most like initially striking episode uh which is the uh the duel um the uh the first one listed on disney plus for us uh is that i don't know if you remember dave if that's the case for you guys over there but yeah the the episode order is i think i'm looking at your notes here now and it yeah it's the exact same as uh us here and i kind of this would just be a little side note but the the September 22 release on a Wednesday. Mm. I think they did that on purpose because the way the calendar works out in Japan, the following day was national holiday here. Oh, okay. So, so for us, anything new on Disney plus comes out at 5 PM of that day or like for you guys, it's really early in the morning, but for us, it's mm-hmm. 5 PM. So I think they kind of did that on purpose because 5 PM Workday comes to an end, and the next day is national holiday. So, boom, everybody was able to kind of like give this their complete focus because they didn't have to worry about going to work the next day, which was my case too. I mean, I got done with work and I went downstairs and I, I got myself a drink and I started watching. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Yeah, nice, nice. Um, yeah, I think uh, Disney Plus stuff drops like is it? It's either midnight or one a.m. Uh, Pacific time. So you know, for me, it's 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 late enough that it's like okay, I got to catch it in the morning. Like if anything, I'll wake up early in the morning and watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't I can't stay up late enough. But 
Um, but yeah, let's, let's get into the duel. Um, I thought this episode was super cool. It's, it's very visually striking. It's funny. I, I was like excited to watch these with my kids and, uh, my older son was like, Nope, not watching it. And I was like, oh my God, you're a teenager. This is awful. Um, but my younger son <laughs> was like, he was like, okay, yeah, I'll watch this with you. And then, um, he enjoyed it and he enjoyed Tatooine Rhapsody. We only had time to watch the two, uh, right away. Uh, but he was like, he kept commenting on like, why, why isn't there any color? Why isn't there any color, you know, in this, in this movie or whatever. And I was like, well, number one, there is. And number two, like, you're just not appreciating the fact that this is emulating like Akira Kurosawa films, you know, (laughs) like you need to get cultured, bruh. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I go ahead guys. Talk about the duel. What's, what's, uh, what are your feelings on this one? Like one of the notes I took in watching the, uh, the feature featurette stuff that they had here in Japanese. And I was really struck by the locations because it felt, I mean, I felt like I've seen stuff like that driving in the countryside in Japan and the director is from Gifu, Gifu prefecture. And he said that they use Shirakawa goal, which is like a world heritage site. It's a very traditional style village. It's also featured, I believe in some of Kurosawa's films, they use that as like the basis for their, their locations. And like, I don't know, just everything about it felt right. It didn't feel like they were forcing anything, anything into it. It just, it just looked and felt so right. And yeah, I mean, just the, the first five minutes, I just couldn't stop thinking about, how right this feels and what why it's taken so long to make something like this i mean i think george lucas would have wanted to do something like that and Mm -hmm. and it it came to fruition in that first five minutes and like the droid with the the hat in in japanese it's called a, a kasa and kasa means umbrella, but also it's for that specific style of hat. And it just, it looked and felt so right. Was- yeah, totally. Um, and it's funny because like I had been um, playing uh, a lot of Ghost of Tsushima um, yep. right before, uh, right mm-hmm. before watching this. And it's, it's funny because there's like that, uh, you know, kind of, there's a prominent group of, um, you know, samurai who, you know, rock those hats. And, oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's, see, I pretty... thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say you'd been playing a lot of pod racers. So seeing a Doug rocking one of those hats uh, <laughs> was very familiar to you, but, you know, always. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what I really kind of loved about, um, this, episode was i think just the pacing um how it just really you know there is there is definitely a lot of action but there are also just moments where things slowed down and you just they just let it breathe and you were you know really able to kind of take in the the atmosphere and the um you know the vibe of it all and um and i think the kind of you know, the, the, the film aspects of it, like using that kind of like scratchy, 
um, uh, camera mm. stuff and um, the and then like combining that with you know Lucas style Star Wars like wipes, which I guess are like you know forties serial style wipes. Um, combining those two things. Um, you know, that Kurosawa influence, that Flash Gordon influence, like, I don't know, it was this very kind of different thing than what we, you know, what you think of when you like, just say Star Wars and like what pops into people's heads. But like, it was also kind of the most Star Wars thing ever, (laughs) um, in a way. And uh, yeah, I think like the I mean, the, the story was cool. I like kind of the sort of moral ambiguity of of it all, which is kind of, you know, uh, a, a trademark of um, samurai films. Um, and I think it's something, you know, when people talk about a, another influence on Star Wars, like Spaghetti Westerns, um, which, you know... I, I've, uh, I've, you know, I've stated on this podcast uh, times before that I'm not a huge fan of the spaghetti Western genre. And, uh, you know, people are like, yeah, but they're basically just like, you know, they're, they're samurai films and you like samurai films. And I think the difference is in samurai films, there's just so much more moral ambiguity and like gray area. Whereas like the spaghetti Westerns are pretty like good versus evil, which is just yeah. like less interesting to me um, just as like a viewer. So I think this like really honed in on that aspect that I love of samurai films and samurai storytelling. Yeah. Real quick on the, uh, you mentioned like, Hey, the wipes that are like the George Lucas star Wars style wipes, but actually they're like the 40 serial style wipes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that was so interesting to me. Cause it's like, you know, um, so much of what the discussion is around Star Wars visions is like, hey, Star Wars was influenced by Japanese films and Japanese culture, but then like it's filtered through Star Wars. And and then, you know, it's almost like you, sometimes like, uh, how do I put it? Like people, a, a, lot, a lot of the audience maybe doesn't like recognize that influence or where that came from. And it's like, there's one layer of like, you know, um, separation between like the original influence and then like the way it it's, it's represented in, in star Wars. And so it's cool. It's so cool that like, you know, with visions, it's like, no, 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 we're going to go back to that original source of inspiration. Um, but like, as you said, like, oh, well actually it's the cereals, like it's the wipes from the cereals. It just struck me as like another example of that sort of thing, because, you know, I wonder if to the filmmakers making this stuff, like if that's really, you know what it is to them it's like oh those are wipes from cereals and things like that or if it's just you know it's one of those things where it's like well because george lucas was influenced by that but then like brought it into star wars it became like a star wars thing in the same way that like you know some of the the samurai film influences and other you know japanese culture influences that came into star wars it became a star wars thing um but then you know it's like a if you know you know situation right where it's Mm. like if you also were influenced by those those things then you recognize it right away you understand like oh no this isn't like original to star wars this is you know being influenced on something else i've been watching casablanca lately Mm. um because i've been teaching that um movie yeah and it's like wow i'm seeing about like every 20 seconds i'm like oh there's a there's a thing that that's uh 
you know, what influenced Star Wars. There's another element that influenced Star <laughs> Wars, you know, and it's not breaking ground here to be like, oh, Casablanca influenced Star Wars because it influenced like practically everything. But, mm-hmm. um, but there's so much in Casablanca that I see in both Star Wars and in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. <laughs> and, but like, I never saw that until now, you know what I mean? So it's just really interesting to think about like these influences that permeate throughout like the art that we love and how, you know, um, for certain members of the audience and even certain creators, I feel like, or I would guess, you know what I mean? Uh, for some of them that like through line is there and, and there's, you know, we understand the wipes as like part of a lineage of, of influences in film history. But then like for other filmmakers or other younger people or whatever it is, I'm not young, but like, I just started picking up on some of the Casablanca stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, it is uh, your first exposure to it is not from the original source, but from the, the source that kind of interpreted it or made it its own, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Um, the other thing I was going to say in response to what you guys were talking about there is that, uh, you know, Dave, you said that it just felt so right watching this and every, the combination of elements felt so right. Um, and I thought that, uh, repeatedly throughout my viewing of all of these, the way that the, I, I think like more than almost any other star Wars I've watched, it felt like the elements of star Wars, spaceships, lightsabers, stormtroopers, whatever droids, um, were, uh, pieces that were being used in much more natural landscapes, which is a strange thing to say. Cause like a new hope is filmed in Tunisia. Right. And like, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many natural landscapes in star Wars, but it never, I, it always feels like we went to Tunisia to try to create an alien world. You know what I mean? You went to Norway to try to create an alien world. And so much, uh, so often in these, uh, short films, I felt like, actually what we're doing is taking that alien world and bringing it to, uh, to something that feels much more natural, you know? And there was discussion of that in some of the featurettes, the idea of like, okay, well we want to take the reverence for mountains and the importance of mountains, uh, in, in, in Japanese culture. And we want to bring star Wars there and, and kind of, um, push that to the forefront in star Wars. And so, um, I really felt that in the duel and in a lot of these other episodes is it's like, we're going to take these elements of star Wars, but we're going to bring them back to a more, in this case, like traditional, what like samurai film setting. But you know, there's a, I forget which of the shorts going forward it is. So there's one where a character has a speeder or maybe they're not even on a speeder. Maybe they're just having a, a lightsaber battle, but they're out on like an icy lake. Oh, that's the um, ninth Jedi. Okay. Ninth Jedi. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, just it's it just it was so powerful and just struck me so much to see like Star Wars happening and what I felt was more like, I mean, I, it's not, not supposed to be, I guess, but just felt like on Earth, you know, in very natural and uh, recognizable settings. And so I guess the uh, bringing in the natural world in that way, not trying to make it alien so much, but more like bringing these alien things to the natural world, uh, I thought was really uh, really powerful. And I think, you know, we see that in the duel and then we see that a lot going forward as well. I would agree. And like with, with the duel, one thing that really st- well, stuck up, well, there's a couple of things that stuck out to me and there's a lot of shots of people like turning and looking up to the distance. Mm-hmm. And that is something I've seen. I remember seeing it in the Clone Wars episode that was based off seven samurai 
we had all the bounty hunters that were hired by that village to protect them from Hondo's group. And the duel had a similar setup where they had a bunch of mercenaries that they had hired to protect them from this group that was coming to attack them. And as the fight is happening in the village, you see them look up to the hill where there was like the little tea house where the Ronin was. And that made me instantly think of um, the Kurosawa film Ron. And there's a battle towards the end of the movie where everything's happening in the plane. But a couple times you see them look up to this distant ridge and eventually an army shows up there. And that shot was repeated in the Phantom Menace when all the droids come over the ridge to go attack the Gundans. And then a similar shot happened in the Seven Samurai as well towards the beginning of the movie where people look up to the distant hill and then suddenly something appears and and nothing about that seemed strange to me and it was just very familiar and it's fabric of what is Star Wars but was what is quintessential Japanese cinema that was made by Kurosawa and then another thing that felt very Star Wars but also Japanese to me was um this is something the directors commented in the Japanese versions of the featurettes that I saw. There's this thing in um, sword fighting in Japanese is called bato, and anybody who's watched like Roni Kenshin will know that he's called Hitokiri bato sai, and bato is literally means like to to do a strike with your sword while it's drawn. Um, while it's sheathed so you you have it sheathed and then you strike and then you sheathe it all in like one motion Mm -hmm. and the directors said they wanted to put they're like the jedi use the force and there's a lot of elements of like the way samurai fight and this not this uh, notion of key and being able to sense the key of your opponent and when's the right time capitalize on that and they're like we felt it was just right to put that in to duel. And so when he's, when he stops the lightsaber with his hands and then he does that, what they call the batojutsu, where he, as she's coming to strike at him and then he pulls his lightsaber like out of the sheath and lights it and like that. It, I mean, that was to me, it was just like taking it and putting all the Star Wars ingredients and just, boom, they were put right back into the original recipe and it, yeah, it just did, it did not feel wrong at all. It, it felt so right. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, sort of one more thing on the duel here is that uh, we know for sure that storytelling surrounding this character uh, will continue, even if there aren't more Star Wars visions, um, because we have the... Uh, the Star Wars uh, Ronin novel, which is coming out um, in about 10 days, I think. Uh, so, of course, I'm really excited about that. I was excited about it before, um, even more excited about it now. And uh, I'm really curious to see kind of how this um, character will be developed, because obviously, like, sort of one of the things, um, or, or maybe the thing that this episode is, is or this this film is is kind of uh, centered around, you know, beside the besides the the uh visual uh approach 
is the fact that, you know, you're surprised, or at least I was surprised to find out that this, uh, you know, wandering samurai is a Sith. And, Mm and, and, and I don't, you know, I'm going to be honest too. I don't know uh, if that's, do they state that directly in the episode or is it just sort of like, you know, his lightsaber is red. And so you understand that. I don't remember. Um, But in the feature rat. Okay. Go ahead. And the feature at the director is like really clear, like calls uh, him a Sith many times uh, to the point where it's like, okay, we're really hammering this home. Like this is a Sith character. Um, but because uh, I think, you know, especially from a Western perspective or whatever, uh, you know, at the end, he's like super nice still, like gives the crystal to the boy and, you know, is like very honor code kind of based, mm-hmm. I guess, the, the actions of the character. And that just does not compute to me it does not line up with what I know about the Sith. You know what I mean? So yep. watching that featurette this morning and hearing the director refer to him as a Sith over and over, I was like, wow, this is, uh, this takes some processing for me. You know, this is like not, this is not how I would, uh, w- would, would necessarily have viewed all this. Um, but I know you guys were saying that, or Ryan, you were saying that, that, you know, that does feel right to you or that feels more in line with the morality of, of samurai films and things like that. Right. Yeah, I think um, it's well, I think in the in the actual episode, there's just like a line where they're like, oh, are you a Jedi? And he's like, not a Jedi, um, something mm. along those lines. Okay. Um, but I think and this is like, I don't I don't want to go like full weeb or anything here, but <laughs> I think um, something just I've always appreciated and always loved about like Japanese storytelling. And this is like a huge generalization. It's not the case in every single, you know, piece of Japanese art. Um, But there is that room for uh, just, just again, moral ambiguity, but not in like, I think we get moral ambiguity in Western storytelling and it's more like anti-heroes. Um, you know, it's like Dirty Harry and mm. stuff like that. And that's not exactly how it plays out in, you know, Japanese storytelling. I think a lot of times it's like people are doing things that may not be, you know, the um, like the most like Paragon light thing to do but they're they have their reasons for it and i think um you know characters in uh japanese films and anime and games and stuff like characters i think people identify and connect with characters like like sephiroth in final fantasy 7 because like he's the bad guy and like he needs to be defeated but like he also has like they they take great pains in both the original release and um in the the recent remake to like be like yeah he has his reasons why he's doing this stuff and like explaining that and it's not just because he's like a mustache twirling cliche like this is the bad guy light versus dark like you got to beat the bad guy and everything will be okay um and I I think that's just something that's always resonated with me because I think uh, the the world and people in in general in real life it's not always like black and white. 
Um, and it's not just always good versus evil. Um, and there's a lot of like complicating factors uh, in that. And uh, and then also sometimes, uh, you know, the the good guys of the story, you know, aren't always that good. Um, and yeah, I think that's something I've just always appreciated, always kind of connected with um, in these, you know, in these stories. Um, and, you know, it's really, really on display here in the duel. And I know like there's definitely like star Wars fans that are hardliners that are like, we never need any gray areas. It always should be light versus dark. Um, but you know, I don't, I think that is like, you know, maybe oversimplifying George Lucas's original vision. Um, you know, he, cause he, he made the prequel trilogy, <laughs> Um, so I, which I think is like the most like Japanese ass storytelling ever. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think this really, again, and I think we've kind of belabored the point by now, but like, this really is so quintessentially Star Wars from, you know, it, from, George Lucas's original vision of what this world could be. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think like obviously the battle between light and dark in specific characters is something that's like absolutely central to star Wars. So like that's that part of it's not like confounding to me or anything, but mm-hmm. like I would say if that lightsaber wasn't red, there's nothing else about the character's actions, behavior or anything that would indicate to you that he is a Sith or at all, uh, uh, you know, a character that's involved with the dark side. So, and I don't have a problem with it. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it like, Oh, that they shouldn't have done that or that's bad. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like, it was, it was surprising to me because, um, the character, you know, maybe I should watch it again and, 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 you know, look for these kinds of things. But to me, the character in every way, behavior, dialogue, everything is coded as like, you know, a light side character. And then, Mm -hmm. so, Oh, it's shocking when that red lightsaber comes out. But then even after the red lightsaber comes out, he continues just to act like a total light side, you know, character. So I don't actually see any ambiguity in actions, behavior or anything other than the lightsabers red. So there's the, there's the, the twist, you know, like he's a Sith, but uh, I think they're going to have to, and that's why I'm really interested in the novel. And if they continue to do more, you know, Star Wars visions um, with that character is like, are we going to see another side of that character? Because I don't actually think this episode or this film shows us another side of that character, unless I'm like, mm-hmm. missing something. It's I just think, the red lightsaber. I think one, one part that goes into his ambiguity morally is that he doesn't jump in to help right away. If he had been a Jedi, the second those, those bandits show up, he would have been, he would have run down from that tea house and started helping out, but he didn't. Mm. And mm-hmm. he, he doesn't really act until everything is pretty much done. And he just kind of, and, and I mean, I watched everything in Japanese and the dialogue at that part where the Sith, the other Sith lady is confronting him. She's like, what are you? And he's like, I'm just a guy passing through and when I heard that in Japanese, I was like, if she hadn't stopped him, he probably would have just walked away <laughs> and mm-hmm. done nothing. 
and so for me that 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 little him not taking any action whatsoever until some action was taken against him had she not said anything had she not come and attacked him i think he he would have just been walking away <laughs> and been huh? on his business and so that to me was the amb- made him seem less jedi to me in that yeah yeah that would just be my counterpoint and yeah uh yeah that that's uh that that makes sense um yeah i'd agree um so yeah i can't wait for that novel like i'm really interested to see you Mm -hmm. know what more there there is to kind of what more story there is to tell uh around that character and sadly there's no date on any japanese translation for that which oh baffles me uh, that's outrageous it's like the author or some whoever was involved in it like they tweeted about it and like oh we're so happy to bring this to you and i was like hey are you guys gonna be doing a japanese translation the guy's like oh i don't know of any plans for serious <laughs> wow. wow yeah <laughs> yeah because i think you had told us before that um like uh japanese releases of star wars novels are kind of hit or miss like it's not yeah. super consistent or um you can't count on it necessarily yeah, and I still haven't, I mean, I haven't checked recently, but as far as I know, no word on any High Republic stuff being translated to Japanese. Oh, wow. Big missed opportunity because I think it would fit Japanese really well. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, well, in, um, in, in uh, traditional house style for us here, we're 40 minutes in and we've talked about <laughs> one of nine episodes. So we should probably yep. move on yeah. uh, to the next one, which is uh, Tatooine Rhapsody. Um, I don't know if you guys could have guessed it, but this is the one that I liked a lot, but didn't necessarily love. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. This would be the one that I was okay. Like, I enjoyed it, but, you know, um, especially following, um, you know, the duel it was like, that was my introduction to Star Wars Visions. And I was like, whoa, this feels, as we've all pointed out, so Star Wars, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then the next one was really fun. Uh, but it was just like, oh, okay, we can be a lot of different things with Star Wars Visions. Like, this can go in really, like, completely different directions. So, um, it's so stylish and, uh, like I said, really fun. Um, but uh, it just... Most of these episodes, when they were over, I was just like felt like blown away and like just I don't know. I mean, really excited. And uh, this one, when it was done, I was like, "Well, that was really fun," you know. But mm-hmm. that was that was about it for me. Um, Ryan, it sounds like you uh, this this would be one of your favorites, or um, at least uh, you you enjoyed it as much as most of them. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say it's like one of my favorites, but okay. I think right. it. Um, you know, this is like. If the duel was like the, you know, the the Kurosawa, the uh, Rurun and Kenshin uh, type of story, um, this would be, I think, something like uh, Beck or... Um, ah, yeah. Beck's... That's a, that's a good... I didn't even think about that. That's a good, good, good reference. Yeah, like this sort of... Um, you know, just, uh, you know, rock and roll dreamer, uh, style of, um, anime, manga, Japanese storytelling. Um, I think like 
there used to be more of these kind of stories, and now they it seems like most uh, anime about aspiring musicians are idol stories um these days uh which which is fine uh i've watched i've watched a little bit of love live uh with my wife and uh it's it's cool stuff but like i i really love like these you know just as like a huge fan of like rock music and stuff like i love was fantastic yeah totally and i just i love uh you know this kind of um you know, interpretation. I also love a lot of like Japanese rock and punk and metal and stuff. So, um, yeah, so I really, really connected with this one. I think the actual like plot is pretty silly. Um, it's just, it's kind of whatever. Um, but what I, what I really liked about it was I liked the way the band looked. Um, I thought they were all, uh, really interesting. Um, and just like, the not so much like the plot but just like the little moments of like them you know trying to connect with the crowd and um you know you know having their big dreams of you know being the the biggest rock band in the galaxy um etc but i think the biggest thing is i just really like the songs um in it and i uh you know i had I had kind of thought like the songs, like they're just, they're so Japanese rock. Um, (laughs) They're, you know, they're every, like you'll, these are the songs you hear, um, you know, when you, when you go into um, like Japanese malls and stuff like in clothing stores. Um, And that's like really nostalgic for me. Uh, It's been a, you know, it's been years since I've been to Japan, but like I would always, you know, hear songs and be like, oh, wow, I wonder what this is like. Okay, I need to figure out like three lyrics so I can like look this up later and figure out what it is um, so I can download it. Um, but yeah, like uh, it apparently the song was uh, inspired by the like the big song they play at the end was inspired by the Ramones uh, Blitzkrieg Bop. Um, which I didn't really pick up on. And that's kind of weird because Ramones are one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, but, uh, yeah, to me, like it, but it was, it was so quintessentially Japanese in the rock. Like it reminded me more of, you know, stuff like Larkin Seal or, you know, some of those, uh, big, um, Japanese rock bands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, My son's been listening to a lot of Larkin Seal because they do a lot of Gundam songs, but it definitely sounded like that. Perfect. Yeah. Like, and I, I love that stuff. Like, you know, that was something I discovered, you know, um, with the advent of the internet, um, you know, in the in the late 90s, like I discovered Japanese rock, ex-Japan, that sort of stuff. And it was like such a huge game changer for me so again this was just something that like i heard that song and i'm like this this sounds like the the opening song to an anime uh it sounds like something i'd hear at a japanese mall like i just love this and so um you know again like the plot was kind of whatever but um i'm really really glad this exists yeah i i i definitely like listening to the to the songs I had the exact same reactions. Like this is so Japanese, and that's why some of the the 
the negative reactions to it. I wonder if it's because people watched it in English and I and I, I tried watching it for like five minutes in English dub mm. and it just drove me crazy and I was like, I can't take this. And I put it back to the mm-hmm. Japanese and I was like, it only works in the Japanese dub because that style of music is so quintessentially Japanese rock that if you try to do it in English, it just falls flat. And it 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 just doesn't I it just it's just missing what makes it work. In Japanese and and the vocalist, I, I could I couldn't figure out who was doing the singing in Japanese. The voice actor, I've I've heard before and other stuff, but something about the way the guy sang for the songs reminded me of this Japanese band called The Michelle Gun Elephant, and hmm. that like the raspy sound of his voice, I I. I, I can't song off the top of my head but there's just something about it i was like i know i've heard this kind of vocal before i don't know if it was the same guy singing it or not but it it just when you said beck a few minutes ago i was like i've been thinking this past week why does this feel so familiar to me and then when you said beck it just clicked because that manga came out in what 2005 i i mean i read the entire series and then i bought uh, i watched most of the anime watched the film i got the soundtrack from the anime because they made a lot of original songs and like yeah all Mm. those songs from the beck soundtrack you could have taken the the song from tatooine rhapsody and thrown it into the beck soundtrack and it would not have felt out of place it was that yeah it was i mean i really liked i thought it was a it would have been better to maybe have saved this one for the very end because the last of the nine ends on such a downer. So <laughs> if you had saved this for the very end, it would have like just been so uplifting. And then you would have like ended your star Wars visions experience with like a very, I mean, they say in Japanese, very Genki. Oh yeah. Genki, Genki, Genki. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I'll just, Everything you said was pretty much my my feelings about this one as well. Mm. I love the band. I love the look of the band. I love the uh, drummer with like three heads playing like the super uh, large drum set. And um, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I love the look of this too. It's interesting how it combines like styles as well, because like when it, when it, like the camera pans down into like Bunta Eve, like the stadium and all that, it's like so computer generated and then you know like most of it looks very hand-drawn and it's just like yeah it's uh it's pretty uh pretty interesting visually um in terms of how it combines those different you know kind of looks and stuff too so um yeah and i have it playing in the background here as we are uh as we're recording uh Mm. and it is just uh very fun you know very energetic very fun so um yeah i i think uh this is uh, another very successful one. It just doesn't have that epic feel that most of them have. Um, but it is kind of good. Like Dave, you were, you were saying it, maybe it should be at the end. Um, I could see it being almost like an intermission type thing, you know, like go through four of them and then you've got this like more lighthearted one in the middle and then do the other four or something like that. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good to have one that's like, um, well, there's more than one that are really different, but, uh, this one is the most different, really different. So it's good to have a really unique episode in here, I think. 
In the filmmaker focus that you guys have, did the director Kimura say that this was his first, this is his directorial debut, was this short? Mm, okay, I don't remember if that, that was mentioned or not. Because like watching the, the Japanese video that Star Wars Japan put up, he's really young. Like he probably would have been around, I, I'm just guessing based on the way he sounded, the way he looked in the interview, he probably would have been like five or six when the prequels came out. Mm. And so seeing it brought back to the Bunta Eve, I thought, well, maybe if his first experience with Star Wars was prequels, then that just kind of makes sense that that is what he went with. And um, one one thing that kind of made me laugh at the end is um, when the band asked Jabba to be their sponsor. And that kind of made me laugh because <laughs> anybody who knows the entertainment industry in Japan knows that a lot yep. of these <laughs> entertainment people indirectly, the Yakuza are tied into it and not so directly and overtly as they were in the past today. It's much, I mean, there's all these laws in Japan that are trying to like weed out the, the Yakuza influence. And so they've gotten very good at um, disguising themselves in white collar operations but when TV and music and entertainment broke onto the scene in Japan in the 1960s, all the money behind it came from the Yakuza. And so I don't know if that was intentional by the director, but any Japanese person who has any knowledge of Japanese entertainment history, and I mean, there's been Japanese entertainers who have like attended parties that they didn't know were being hosted or funded by somebody with connections to the Yakuza. And they actually have to go on TV and like apologize for taking money or participating in something that was had that association. I thought it was funny that the band here is like asking the biggest crime boss in the galaxy to be their sponsor. I was like, that is so perfect. Cause that is the Japanese entertainment industry. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I didn't even make that connection. Uh, but that's that's so obvious now. And like, and this is not going to be the only time we talk about uh, the Yakuza oh, yeah, in, yeah. in uh, this conversation. But yep. I did not make that connection. But it's it's so true. Yep. <laughs> I laughed. I watched it when I it wasn't the first time, but the second time today when I watched it, I was like, Oh, my God, this is Japanese it's like kind of like picking at the Japanese entertainment industry it's brilliant <laughs> yeah wow um okay well let's move on to uh let's move on to the next uh the next episode here which has a very Star Wars title uh the twins um mm-hmm. and uh I have to say uh actually this is my I'm not ranking these okay I'm not I'm not yeah. ranking these but if I were <laughs> let's not this, this is my other like you know kind of like least favorite i guess you'd say besides uh oh, rhapsody yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. and uh i liked it a lot i thought it was really cool but uh this one just you know didn't quite affect me on the same level as most of the other ones um but uh very visually striking and um definitely you know like in terms of the uh the way the action is uh is presented and uh the visual style and everything is uh you know pretty pretty unique again in comparison to um most of the other the other episodes here this one is by uh trigger studios i think right mm-hmm. um yeah, are they, they one of they the studios two. that did they did two they did two they did this one and they did the elder 
Mm-hmm. Oh, the elder. Okay. Okay. Um, nice. Completely nice. different styles. Both. Yeah. 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 I would not have, uh, definitely would not have been able to pick up on, on these two being from the same studio. So, um, w- where did you guys land with, uh, with the twins? Um, uh, it, to me, it like, it looked familiar, like, Oh, I've seen anime that looks like this, but I don't know what that is or like what the, what the touch points are for this one. Um, Ryan's notes with Dragon Ball Z and reading that, I was like, now I know why this feel. I mean, their last Jedi references were so obvious with like cutting through the, the super star destroyer, but mm. the whole crazy confrontation and the powering up, I was like, why does this feel so familiar? And then <laughs> Ryan's notes and like Dragon Ball Z, I was like, Oh, of course <laughs> that's, that's where it comes from. And if I had to like pick one of the bunch that, I mean, I love them all, but this one didn't impact me as much as some of the others, but I think part of the reason for that is just, it was so insane that after two viewings, I'm still like, I can't, (laughs) I can't keep up with it. It's yeah. It's so intense. Very frenetic. Very frenetic. Like I thought the, the video that star Wars Japan did when they talked to the, um, the directors and the people involved in it. And they had some really interesting things to say, like they were so determined to be part of this star Wars visions thing. Like before they had anything set in stone, they just like went all out with their sales pitch Mm. to Lucasfilm. And one, one guy was his name. The design guy, his name is Shigeto Koyama. And he he said that he's always been fascinated by like mecha and gadgets and anybody who's seen like I mean Gundam, Evangelion, any type of Japanese I wanted anime. to mention Gundam, but I was like, I'm gonna sound so stupid if I mention that. <laughs> no, no, no. Like I I don't you know, whatever, but like there was a there was a part where it was showing this like whole like uh like schematic of like how it was powering up yeah. and like powering the suits and stuff and i was like oh that's like a gundam thing right that's but i was like don't, that say, was it. don't say it don't say it gundam or gundam or i felt more like evangelion <laughs> oh okay okay but but it's definitely in 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 that mecha vein and that's because it was intentional because this koyama guy is like he said the first star wars he saw in the theater was empire strikes back and he was blown away by the walkers the super star destroyers mm. He said for him, like, and and I thought this is really interesting because two big Japanese takes on Star Wars is the more philosophical aspects where everybody really tunes into the Eastern philosophical influences, but there's also the big technology aspects and that has to come with um, Japan as a nation traditionally has been bereft of resources. And so they've had to compensate for that with other things. And what have they done? They've for many, many years, they've been in the vanguard of technology. And so Mm. that's been reflected in their art. I mean, you look at, you got Ultraman, you got Rockman, you got Astro Boy, all these Japanese pop culture things have been very mecha centric because that is one way in which Japan has sought to overcompensate for their lack of resources that say a nation like the U S or China has. 
And so they wanted to throw that in there into the twins. And then, I mean, lightsabers and X-wings and there was no reason for an X-wing to be in there, but Koyama's like, I loved X-wings. I just wanted to put it in there. So he put uh-huh. it in there. I was told, yeah, because I told I was watching this one and I was like, wait a minute, they're on like a Star Destroyer, right? Like, where is this? Why is this X-Wing sitting here? Um, but uh, no this is also... He just wanted to put an X-Wing in there. He loves X-Wings right. and he put it in there for that reason. Yeah, and I mean, it just, it it, uh, it it fits with the theme of this one, right? Which is like, probably don't ask too many questions about like how and why things are yeah. uh, occurring because it's all pretty... Um, pretty intense like the entire battle uh between the twins takes place or most of it takes place on top of a star destroyer in space um and uh you just got to go with it right yeah i'm sure there's like some some dork on youtube no, no, that's don't like even no plot hole <laughs> or or i was gonna say like there's some explanation for it i don't need either of those things i don't need you to tell oh. me like oh they shouldn't be able to breathe out there i don't care um mm-hmm. and i also don't need any explanation for why actually it's okay it's like there's it's okay sp- because it's yeah. a fun wild <laughs> story you know like just go with it mm-hmm. yeah there's space okay. whales that can go through hyperspace <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you can okay. have that yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, just another thing I love about uh, Japanese uh, storytelling. Again, a generalization, not always the case, but there isn't a constant need to explain everything, and there's not constant demands from the audience to have things explained to them. Um, and we'll, I think we'll get into that more in the um, the next one, but I did just want to say, like, um, I love this one. Um, just like kind of a quick aside, um, I was so happy to see the two Studio Trigger uh, works on here because I think they show kind of two sides of what this studio and the people there are capable of. Um, so yeah, just quick uh, quick history lesson here. Um, so Studio Trigger was founded by ex-Gynax staff and Gynax was, um, you know, just, uh, they started as like a bunch of enthusiasts, um, you know, just making their own kind of like pet projects and, um, you know, just trying to break into the industry. And they um in the, in like their f- very first like total copyright infringing um video that they made maybe not their first but one of their their biggest one there's like a bunch of star wars references in it um and then they would go on to um you know and some of the people um, from who like formed Gynax were also like had sm- small to like medium sized roles on works with um, on on Gundam series on uh, Miyazaki films, um, and then like they came together, and then like uh, yeah, no no secret, uh, Gynax is like my favorite anime studio of all time. Evangelion is my favorite anime. I'm one of those guys, but uh, I think like they, I just love them so much the way that they kind of came together. They brought in all the, everything they had learned, everything they loved about anime from Gundam, from uh, Ghibli. And then 
they kind of would go on to kind of like deconstruct a lot of that in their own works. Um, stuff like, I mean, even, you know, uh, Gunbuster and Evangelion and even their, like some of their adaptations, like, uh, Kara uh, Ekano, uh, his and her circumstances, um, they would kind of take a lot of tropes and then kind of like deconstruct them um, and explore them. And so, yeah, and so that was, and then people from that studio broke off and formed Trigger. And so, like, they, they're just, they're people who come from, this um, really, you know, prestigious background in anime, and they've just been surrounded by legends and people who worked with legends. So they're just they've taken in so much of the of the art form, and you know, and they can just do so much with it. I think we could have easily gotten nine Studio Trigger uh, shorts from Vision visions and they would all be completely different. Um, but I am glad that they kind of got to show off different sides of their storytelling and different, you know, different people spearheaded each project. Um, because this is the twins was their, um, it's like a, a little, a little bit shown in a little bit like, big big action uh really like just ridiculous um you know fights super expressive um this was kind of closer to i think something like in dave you i've i have not figured out how to <laughs> pronounce this so i'm gonna need your help here but is it promare or promare 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 okay and i've I've added it to my list of things to watch because it's available on Amazon Prime here in Japan. Oh, great. And because I remember you talking about it and I was, I meant to watch it before Visions came out and I didn't get around to doing it, but I definitely want to watch it now because just the trailer I watched of that for that film, the colors, and this Mm -hmm. is something that the Japanese Star Wars Japan in their interview with the Trigger guys, they talked about the blues, the yellows, and the reds really stuck yeah. out to me in both the twins and in the trailer of Pro Mare that I saw. And that really fascinates me because, I mean, just those three basic colors, you can blend them in many different ways and create all sorts of different colors. And mm-hmm. that was really just visually something that stuck with me after watching the twins and seeing examples of that vein of style in what trigger can do. Totally. Yeah. I think, um, I would be, I'm going to be very curious what you, what you think of it. Um, I, I love the film personally. Um, but like, I know like after we finished watching it, like I watched it with my wife and she's like a huge anime fan and we watched it and she was like, Whoa, that was a lot that was that was too much um and i was like no it was amazing i want to watch it and i want to watch it in a theater now um kind of thing so it's uh but this was this was them like going all in on that style and 
I I think with a a pretty simple plot, um, you know, there's some complicated dynamics and stuff in it. I wouldn't say it's like over simple, but it's like pretty easy to follow compared to some of the other plots we're about to get to um, for these stories. But like this one was just like really focused on the action in those big moments, which is something the studio can do really, really well. And they just like doubled down on them for this uh for this short and i think it uh i think it worked perfectly all right cool uh should we move on then to the village bride let's do it all right cool so the village bride um is uh set as you point out in the notes here ryan in the clone wars era um although another you know i i love uh or one thing i guess i love about this episode is that again it seems to be set in just a very you know, kind of, uh, natural environments. Uh, it's, it's very much about this, you know, um, journey up a mountain and into a, a village and, you know, like there are battle droids and other elements that indicate, you know, that that's the era that it's in. Um, but, uh, it, again, to me, it feels like we're sort of peppering in the star Wars elements into a much more kind of, you know, natural setting versus, you know, bringing in some natural elements to an alien setting. So uh, I continue to appreciate that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode as well. Um, I think uh, the art is beautiful and uh, I appreciate, you know, kind of how the story um, develops and becomes, you know, it starts out as this simple thing where you need to get up this mountain for, you know, to go to this sacred place for this wedding. And then, um, you know, the narrative kind of quickly becomes more complex uh, from there. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love this one. This, this was easily my favorite. Oh, and okay. um, And from what I've seen on Japanese, from Japanese fans on Twitter, and you could probably tell from, I mean, I, I just saw these great tweets about this one by Japanese fans and I would, I would take them and I would retweet them. And the thing that really just was the the very first tweet by Japanese fan I saw is that they said, this is the essence of what a Jedi is supposed to be, but it has all those elements of Eastern philosophy, especially the Japanese sentiment towards nature, which is indicative of the original form of Shinto. There are two forms of Shinto. There's the Ko Shinto, the Koka Shinto, which is the nationalistic Shinto that is what was prominent in the Meiji, Taisho, Showa, early Showa up until the end of World War II, basically this uh, very militaristic type of Shinto. But the Village Bride has the old style of Shinto where everything is um, in nature has a, like a divine presence. And this is what a lot of these Japanese fans really clued into. And like the Japanese director of this, his name is Hitoshi Haga. And like I retweeted this Japanese person's comment in English and he liked it. And I was like, I was like, how did you find my tweet? (laughs) And like he like somehow came across things that I was retweeting from Japanese fans, but translating into English. And he was like liking all of them. And then I found a thing that he did about, I'll get into it 
later when we talk to the main, main and he ended up following me on Twitter. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty amazing. Oh, wow. Nice. And I just like, he like thanked me for like retweeting this thread he did about the main character. And I like summarized everything he said. And he was like, oh, thanks for doing it. I was like, oh, I'm just using my Japanese ability. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to hear this. But um, one scene, uh, I'll get bringing it back to the Shinto part. One scene that really impacted me was when they get to their destination and they're standing before this massive boulder and then they do the prayer to Magina, which is what they call the force. And the first thing that struck me is that boulder is I've seen on a much, much smaller scale. I've seen many boulders like that in Japanese shrines and they'll be roped off, like literally roped off with this special type of rope. And it has white pieces of paper attached to it. And so the second that they're standing before that massive boulder, I instantly thought of these boulders I've seen in Japanese shrines. And then I also thought of a mountain near where I live. It's called Mitake-san. San is... um one way of reading the kanji for Yama mountain and, and you have Fujisan Mount Fuji, the mountains themselves were worshiped as deities in traditional Shin. And so them standing before that, when I saw that and all those things came up in my mind, I'm like, well, if I'm thinking this, and this is somebody who's not Japanese, but has just lived here a long time and has, made an effort to learn study Shinto. I was like, if I'm seeing this, I'm pretty sure most Japanese fans are. And then when I looked on Twitter, sure enough, that's like what everybody was saying. Mm. And then after they do the prayer, you see like, like literally an earthquake and like the ground falls away. There's great upheaval. It's not pleasant. It's destructive. And that, instantly brought to mind a great quote by he he passed away last year or two years ago this great japanese scholar by the name of takashi umehara and he was very just incredible guy who wrote a lot about japanese religious thought both shinto and buddhism and whatnot and he said that the way he described shinto was that shinto is both the use mother nature as the benevolent mother and the evil tyrant. And there are two faces to mother nature and what Japan has done because Japan's on the ring of fire. We get earthquakes, we get volcanoes, we get it all. We get typhoons. We get, we get both all the rain makes rice growing and the agriculture here possible. But with all that rain, we also get typhoons. We get all of the good and bad of Mother Nature. And he said this is reflected in Shinto, where Shinto, reali- Shinto realizes that Mother Nature gives a lot. Mother Nature also gives you a lot of bad. And so what Shinto does is try to appease Mother Nature and say, we are going to coexist with you, and we accept that some things will be bad. We 
hope these offerings and our fidelity will give you some look on us more kindly type of thing. And all of that comes through so beautifully in the village bride that as one Japanese person that I retweeted said, had him in tears at the end. It was so profound. And I, I think I, I feel almost like a sense of duty to try to convey all that to the Western audience, because without that backdrop, I think half of the message of the village ride will go missing to Western audiences. Hmm. Oh, so, sorry, sorry for that long spiel there, but that's why I loved it so much. No, that's, that's fascinating. And uh, I think you're right. Cause I definitely, I would say a lot of that uh, uh, I did not, you know, pick up on. So um, it's uh, definitely, um, you know, kind of important to, for you to communicate that. Cause I, I was not picking up on that at all. Yeah. Um, I missed a lot of that as well. I think I like, <clears throat> I hadn't put those connections together, like as strongly, like I, f- I felt them there, but it wasn't kind of what went top of mind to me. Um, and I think that's just being, uh, you know, so far removed from, uh, you know, Japanese culture and the day-to-day um, of of being there. And I wonder, um, you know, how, if I would uh, kind of feel differently if it was, you know, if I was watching this at a time when I still lived in Japan um, and was just so, so much more immersed. Um, that is interesting. I think um, kind of separate from that, like the things that I really appreciated um, about this episode was... Um, I, I felt like this was a really, um, this episode had a lot of really strong, um, respect for the audience. Um, I've, I felt, um, and that's like not even touching on kind of like the deep, uh, philosophical elements, um, and religious elements that you, um, kind of pointed out there, Dave, but I think just in like the general storytelling, um, it just kind of like tosses you into a very complicated scenario, um, with a lot of different, uh, personal dynamics, emotional dynamics, power dynamics, all just happening that like, they're not explicitly stated. And it's really up to the viewer to be, you know, it's, it's on the viewer to be like, focused and paying attention and picking up on these like little hints. Um, There's just a lot of subtlety in the characters interactions. There's also some very not subtle (laughs) characters um, as well who make, you know, make their um, opinions and um, dynamics like very clear. But um, I just, I really appreciated that because you're, you're kind of thrown into this, um, you know, potentially tragic scenario and you're like why does it have to be this way why what is happening here like and um and then you know it it kind of un, um unravels the threads of the story as you're watching if you're like picking up on it and i just i really appreciated um that aspect of it definitely i i would totally agree it's it, it harps back to what you said earlier about how a lot of Japanese anime, a lot of Japanese just 
art in general doesn't explain everything for you and mm-hmm. lets you infer that for yourself. And I think that's a really good reflection of how the Japanese language works. Mm. And it's something that I both love and struggle with on a daily basis <laughs> in yeah. my own communication, plus in the work I do in translating is yeah. there's a lot of reading between the lines, and a lot of um, tuning into the unspoken what goes unsaid mm-hmm. and what is implied. And so I mean, one thing that comes to mind to me is um, this will get a little bit historical, but the end of World War II, before the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on Japan, they issued an ultimatum. And the Japanese response was very Japanese. And I feel that had Washington had people more in tune to the subtleties of Japanese messaging, they would have realized that Japan was throwing up a white flag, but they didn't mm. because the way that was the response was worded when you translate it literally, it's just kind of like, what the F mm-hmm. <laughs> was that supposed to mean? But when I read what it was in Japanese, I was like, this is so obvious. We're done. We're done. But it it didn't. But when it gets translated English, and if you can't tune into those messages, it, it gets lost. And like like you said, the beauty of the Village Bride and some and just a lot of Japanese anime and art in general is that it leaves so much unsaid, and it's up to the audience to active effort to engage with that. Of all of these, I think the Village Bride does that the best. All right. Uh, well, why don't we move on then to uh, the Ninth Jedi? The Ninth Jedi. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah. So Ryan, uh, as you uh, point out here in your notes right away, th- this is a, a really compelling and sort of mysterious premise. This episode has a pretty compelling mysterious premise um as uh all of these jedi characters are gathering on a, a space station i guess you'd say um which i mean this is like one of the first things that i found really striking about this episode is the way um the i don't know what would you say like the iconography or the the imagery of like kyber crystals is like throughout everything mm-hmm. um and it's so cool, isn't it? Like the way this ship is, um, or what I, would we, a space station, I guess. Uh, what would we call this? Like they, they called it in. You know, I, I I actually watched that and a couple others before our conversation tonight. It's referred to in Japanese as a temple. Oh, okay, it, yeah, it's yeah. Like, that actually it's like makes the space. The space temple is like literally what it's referred to in Japanese. It's the Uchu. Yeah, it's it's like the space temple. Yeah, that makes way more sense actually because like it, it every time I said space station, it's like that just doesn't feel right because it's it's you know 
built out of rock and stone. And it, you know, it's, again, it's, uh, it feels very naturalistic in comparison to what we would normally think of as like a Star Wars space station. Right. Um, and it evokes, uh, both, well, it evokes a, a kyber crystal, I guess, in terms of, of shape. Um, and then there's even a beam of light, uh, protruding from it at points in the episode. So, you know, um, and, yeah, and clearly like lightsaber, like a lightsaber pointing down at the planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the premise is compelling because we have all these, um, uh, potentially Jedi characters, um, <laughs> collect, you know, collecting here or coming together here on the, at this temple. Um, and part of the promise, if I'm remembering correctly, is like, none of us have lightsabers, but, um, we have a lightsaber Smith or like a lightsaber collector who's going to meet us here and, uh, and bring like lightsabers, right. Or can, can, you know, reconnect these characters with lightsabers. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, That's like what, cause, cause that, at that time in the galaxy, like it's supposedly set. I, I kind of think it's set like way after the events of the sequel trilogy mm. and like Jedi have like disappeared from the galaxy. And so have lightsabers, like nobody knows how to make them anymore. And so like, this is kind of like a really big deal. Like not only are the Jedi being brought back, but like lightsabers are coming back to the galaxy is, is the Okay. And, and we'll like bring the Jedi back too, I think, right? Yeah. Like the, the Jedi are kind of dormant or, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's, uh, this, this term Margrave is repeated, uh, throughout the episode. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, they keep referring to, uh, uh, a, a Margrave and I had to look that up. I did not know that term. I don't know if you guys knew that term or not, but I was like, this, this sounds like a real thing, not just like a term made up for star Wars, but I wasn't familiar with it. Did you guys know that term, Margrave? I didn't hear. I watched it in Japanese, so I didn't hear Margrave per oh. se. So it oh, must okay. have referred to something different. In gotcha. Japanese. Yeah. Well, apparently it's like a it's like a medieval um, uh, role, and it's someone who like protects uh, an area or a, a district or something like that. Um, so yeah, the 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 one character is referred to as a uh, margrave juro oh okay because because uh, yeah in japanese is called hakushoku and that is count one way you can translate oh. as count yep so i i because because it's the same for count dooku is it's a uh, dooku hakushoku and so watching it I mean, this will get to the twist part, but watching it in Japanese and hearing him referred to that way, I, I was like, oh, Hakushoku, that's just like Dooku. Oh, maybe this guy is evil. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny because when Ryan was talking earlier about how like, hey, Star Wars, you know, sometimes does like very obvious, like light and dark, good guy, bad guy, whatever. Like Count Dooku was a character that was springing to mind to me as one who's like, clearly he's a bad guy, but um you know, not in the mustache twirling. I mean, I guess like <laughs> in general, yes, he's mustache twirling, but in comparison to other Star Wars villains, there's a little more, uh, you know, gray area there, I guess, with him. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I like that terminology either way, though, either the English version or the, uh, the I guess, the Japanese. Um, but either way, it's kind of like a 
uh, I don't know. There's, there's a, the title has, uh, uh, there's some kind of like, I don't know, power to it or, yeah. you know, uh, something really mysterious and kind of cool and interesting, you know, um, it connects, it connects to traditional Western fantasy. Mm, I feel yeah. like mm-hmm. it has like a kind of like a Lord of the Rings type feel to it. Plus that kind of like medieval magic type yeah. fantasy lore. I can see now why they went with a term like that in English. I think that's a good choice. That was really well done. Yeah, and that kind of ties into um, my thoughts about this one. Um, I felt like this was of all the um, of all the the stories told in visions. Um, this one felt the most Western to me um in the kind of like style of star wars storytelling this felt like it could have been you know something made by lucasfilm animation um and i think a lot of that has to do with again like the studio and the studio's background this was um done by uh Production production ig who has really they've done tons of like Japanese anime and games and stuff, um, you know, since since the 80s. But they've also worked with a lot of Western properties. Um, they did, um, I think, m- the thing that probably most people have seen that they worked on, uh, if you're not, like, you know, into anime and stuff, is the Oren scene in Kill Bill. Um, that anime her like origin yep. story there um but sh- they've also worked on um the the batman anime shorts the the halo anime shorts um and they've just i think generally the kind of stuff that they work on like just uh western audiences respond to really well um they were involved with um, a lot of like Nintendo games um, stuff like uh, they did the anime shorts for Star Fox Zero, um, Kid Icarus Uprising, um, things you know properties that are kind of like beloved in in the West. Um, I mean, they worked on like a, a they did a Mass Effect uh, anime. Um, so I think they do like have a deep appreciation and understanding of Western style storytelling. And I think like, I, I think it's notable that this was probably the, this, this story had the, I think probably the biggest twist to it. And it was a very, a very Western style twist um, that I think, because uh, like, again, like generalizations, uh, but I, I feel like in a lot of Japanese storytelling, it's not always just a setup to a big twist or a big reveal. Um a lot of times it's like just shocking moments throughout or a slow burn to something um, maybe kind of surreal. Uh, But I think like the, 
you know, the the quote unquote twist, you know, your your sixth sense moment, the thing that happens in horror movies constantly, you know, those the raised parents, like the uh Luke Skywalker's parentage, like those kind of those kind of twists, uh that feels like a very Western thing. So I think it's like appropriate that this story had like that the the biggest of the twists um and yeah yeah that's just kind of where i landed on it i also really liked it um a lot but this is one that i feel at least on my timeline uh on twitter this was one that people were really kind of responding to um Mm. especially the the character uh kara or kara um I, it, it it's the the correct pronunciation is kara kara yeah because when i i looked at the japanese subtitles with the japanese dub and the the ka sound is elongated so okay. the probably better way to write it in english would be k a a r a because you know to to lengthen out that because yeah because the way they've said it in japanese is kara kara Okay. Yeah. I just saw a lot of like resonance with that character, with this um, story in general, people were posting a lot of like screen captures from it. Um, And so I think like, to me, this felt like, I think some of the, some of the stories um, in visions were like really like, you know, Japanese creators, like just really focusing on, you know, Japanese elements of storytelling and this one was definitely that like it is you're you're not going to confuse this for like an episode of Star Wars Resistance or anything uh but it's still like very anime um but it also like I think there was some thought process in like you know Star Wars is a western property we can tell western style stories through our anime lens let's do that is kind of how it felt to me. And I could be totally wrong on that, but that's just uh, the vibe I got from it. I, I think that vibe is right because in, in the Japanese features I watched with the director of, is it Kenji, uh, was it Kenji Kameyama? I think is the director of, of uh, that one. And he said that he, I mean, he's just, um, Star Wars had a huge impact on him mm. as a as a kid and what he the premise he he got was he wanted to make something that had action and lightsabers and he needed a way to set that up and that's where he got with the idea of the swordsmith and the swordsmith I mean we have blacksmiths in traditional western history and so it's it's kind of like a very universal type of artisan position, artisan craft that is easily worked into something like that. And he um he just he, what he said that I thought was very um interesting was that he drew a lot of inspiration from Episode Four, and mm. he th- was with the character of Kara who is this no-name person just like Luke. 
and this no-name person starting out on a journey this like this whole type of heroes heroes journey and i think like you said that's that's why it feels so western is this whole i mean even though like Joseph Campbell was had these inspirations from like Eastern philosophy as well. The hero's journey is still very much a very Western type of journey. And so hearing your description and hear how you've referred to Western audiences reacting to this episode really rings true with what the director himself said, because he's mm-hmm. going back to what in he loved most about star Wars when he first saw it was that this no name person goes on a hero's journey. And that is what he sought to put in to ninth Jedi. You know, I, another thing about this episode is like, to me, it was the one that most was, uh, was most successful in blending like hand-drawn uh, traditional style of animation with like 3d or more, I don't know what the correct terminology is, but more more uh, modern um, computer rendered, yeah, yeah. Uh, backgrounds and things like that. I thought it was really beautiful, and uh, like in the duel, I love the duel. I love the way the duel looks, but there's a few kind of like um, matrixy kind of like real like show offy camera movements and stuff that mm-hmm. feel a little like computer controlled and just a little like not. Mm, I don't know. I, I don't love necessarily, um, and then. I'm trying to remember there was one other one that we've already talked about where it was like the blend of 3d back or computer rendered backgrounds. And then like hand-drawn, uh, style animation didn't quite, you know, it was good, but like there was, there were some moments where I was like, "Mm." so, you know, the blend isn't quite right or whatever, but this one, I absolutely loved the appearance of this or the, the, the look of this episode. And I thought all the elements came together, like exactly, you know, uh, exactly right. You know, from the hand-drawn stuff to the uh, computer rendered stuff to even like the, the imagery and iconography, like we, you know, opened up talking about with the Kyber crystal shapes and things like that. Like it all just worked, uh, exactly, uh, perfectly for me. So, um, yeah, I guess it does appeal to Western audiences. (laughs) Um, you know, it's, but, but for me, it's not so much the twist, like, like that's what I love about it or anything, you know, but Mm -hmm. it is, uh, it is, it is a great story. And I also think it's really cool how this, this, um, it's this episode, right. That really is like, depending on who, you know, is using that lightsaber, that blade changes colors, you know? So when they all turn them on at the end, it, it becomes red because of who's using it. Um, I kind of like that, uh, approach to the lightsaber color and crystal and that kind of thing versus the, Versus the kind of more Western explanation, uh, at least in the way that you're describing Western storytelling, Ryan, um, uh, approach that we have, you know, in the canon or whatever, which is Mm. like, oh, the Sith will bleed the lightsaber and make it bleed. And then that's why it's red for them and not for, you know, it's like, do I need an explanation for this necessarily? Or, (laughs) you know, I don't actually need a logical explanation. It's like those guys are bad. So when they turn it on, it's red because that's the evil color. Like that is actually perfect. Like, I don't it kind of makes that. perfect sense. Like it's yeah. kind of weird that that's not the canon explanation. Like your lightsaber should just reflect who you are and what your yeah. motives are. Like that, yeah. that if I had to pick cherry pick one element that would be very Japanese would be that because there's a Japanese word, saki, which is in kanji, it's korosu to kill. And then mm. ki spirit 
And so, like, anytime, like, in, like, type of samurai manga or, like, samurai story, and, like, you would hear this person's, like, oh, saki o kanjita. Like, they would say, I felt this, like, dark energy of, like, intent to destroy. And so, like, the second that, like, all those Sith people fire up the lightsabers and they turn red. I was like, wow, that's like the Kyber crystal sensing that Saki in them and then reflecting it in the blade. I was like, oh, that's, that's like a really cool Japanese touch to Western storytelling (laughs) element. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. That was just how I reacted to it. Knowing type of, Japanese words and I I haven't seen any Japanese fans react to that maybe maybe some have but that was one 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 of my Japanese reactions <laughs> to it huh but oh one more thing did you guys think anything about the number nine in that like why they went went to number nine um isn't the droid named like nine 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 or something as well. Well, yes. And this is something, I don't know if they did it in the featurettes you guys got, but in the Japanese ones that uh, Star Wars Japan did, this blew me away. The director goes, because he was asked by the guy doing interviews, like, so what is the significance of the number nine in this? And he's like, well, some people say that the number nine is representative of a rebirth, a restart. And the interview is like, well, why is that? And he's like, when you look at a multiplication table for nine, every all the numbers, when you break it down, no matter what, all the numbers, when they are put back together, equal nine. Like you do nine times one is nine. It's still nine. Or if you do like mm-hmm. nine times nine is 81, but eight plus one is nine. Right. Six times three is 18, but one plus eight is nine. He's like, so everything goes back to nine. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, that's why he went with the number nine for the ninth Jedi. He wanted to get this idea of like the rebirth of the Jedi, the restart. And he reinforced that idea with using the number nine. Huh. He's done that. So when I, when I watched that interview part and he gave that answer, like the interviewer kind of was like, he, he literally said, whoa, oh, I did <laughs> not realize it was that deep. And my, like his jaw dropped and my jaw dropped. I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Wow. <laughs> he really did have a deep purpose in using the number nine that kind of just and that's after hearing that uh, that like took this episode and just moved it way up on top of my list i I love that that's great yeah so um all right we're gonna move through the remaining episodes um a little more quickly here in the interest of time so let's talk about one of my favorites t uh how do we say it t-o-b-1 t-0-b-1 yeah, or T O B one, T O B one, Yeah, because okay. yeah, it ends up being Toby, right? That's the reveal. Yeah. It's like your name is Toby. Oh yeah, T O B one. Yeah, I believe. Uh, yeah. So anyway, 
Toby, T-O-B-1. Um, I love this episode. Uh, we talked off air and I was like, oh man, I'm probably missing like all the other um, influences, but this just felt so Mega Man to me mm-hmm. um, or Rock Man, as you put it in the notes here, Ryan, the, uh, the original uh-huh. Japanese name. Um, you guys pointed out to me that uh, Astro Boy would be the anime influence. Anime manga, manga influence. Manga. Okay, well, yeah, okay, manga. Yeah, it was a Tezuka Osamu manga. Okay. Um, 60s, I believe. 1960s. Yeah, yeah. One of one of like the big, uh, biggest uh, breakthrough um, anime uh, into like mainstream culture. I I think it's generally considered the yeah. the anime that really uh, like the the manga was successful, but I think it was like the anime, and it also was one of the first uh, exported um, animes as mm. well um to uh leave leave the country yep uh, um yeah because i was just like oh that is dr light and that is yeah. Mega Man, and um it's even a robot workshop i don't know if all those things are in astro boy or not but i was like man they this are. is mega man okay okay <laughs> so are. mega man is yep. just astro boy capcom style gotcha yeah, um, pretty much yeah okay all right cool very good that's perfect description (laughs) (laughs) yeah um yeah so this is uh this is the story of a a a boy robot who dreams of being a jedi and uh the dr light character uh the the i guess what technician this is a pinocchio story right that's what this is yeah and uh yeah the his creator um it is revealed um after a mishap on the part of the uh the uh the the robot boy the mega man the astro boy the rock man um <laughs> toby after he makes a mistake it is revealed that uh, actually his creator is a jedi himself um and uh, uh he is defeated right by this evil character um who's referred to as an inquisitor in the behind the scenes video yeah. so um yeah by this inquisitor and then of course uh toby has to uh, pick up the mantle of jedi which is what he wanted all along um, his master leaves him the lightsaber, right? And uh, and he's able to uh, take on this Inquisitor, but he's victorious through the help of his uh, all these other little droids um, mm-hmm. from the workshop, right? So uh, I just loved this uh, episode. Sounds like I maybe was a little more excited about this one than than uh, the two of you were, but uh, I, I just loved how wholesome it was. I loved. Uh, I just loved how quirky and uh, different it was from a traditional Star Wars story. Um, mm-hmm. I love the idea of a robot being, uh, or a droid, I guess, in Star Wars parlance, uh, a droid being a Jedi. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just so much of it that's just like, it's just so uplifting, I think, to me. And just so much about like, you know, the the idea of believing in oneself. Like, oh yeah, you're a droid. I guess you feel the force. Cool. You know, like I, I, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, you said something about the pacing felt off to you on this one. Um, yeah, I, it? yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it was just like, uh, like, cause there's definitely, there's like a time jump in there. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it spends a lot of time. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's just, uh, the pacing is just uh, a little different. I think it's like it's silly for a while um, and then it's like extremely serious um, and then it's kind of just, uh, 
you know, just just kind of like uplifting happy ending um, mm. to it. And I think there is like a little bit of uh, kind of whiplash there for me. Um, and but also that's kind of what Astro Boy is. Um, I went back and read um, a few volumes of the manga a few years ago, and it is like it it goes from really dark to really silly a lot um and i don't know yeah i think like the i guess in in that way um this is uh you know very much the um the homage to uh to that seminal work mm-hmm. i I'd, i felt that was very tezuka because when I was and I talked about it earlier, the uh, the manga, the Phoenix Hinotori, mm-hmm. it had a lot of that. It would be super serious, and it would just have these random parts that just had you laughing. And so those extremes sometimes are a little jarring. And I think that is, I really enjoyed this one. It was it was <laughs> a lot of fun. It felt quintessential Japanese cute. Mm-hmm. in its presentation but those jarring extremes were accentuated by the fact that this is 13 minutes yeah so that i mean if the one negative i guess for that would be kind of makes the pace feel a little bit weird but in in the end i guess the underlying message that i really liked about it was that jedi are supposed to be givers of life mm-hmm and that the um, Toby is taking on his his master's mantle and going to planets that have been bereft of life. Something happened and life withered away and he's helping to restore it. And the name of his master, Mit- Mitaka, Mitaka-sensei, and Ryan, Ryan's probably been in Tokyo and he knows there's a station and there's a city in Tokyo called Mitaka. Oh, and Mitaka that. is where the Studio Ghibli Museum is. <laughs> and oh, okay. And so <laughs> the whole time I'm watching this and he's saying Mitaka, Mitaka, Mitaka. And I'm like, Mitaka no Mori, Ghibli, Ghibli. I'm like, oh, yeah, go to Mitaka and you can go ride on the bus from Mitaka Station to go to Studio Ghibli. And I don't, I'm wondering if the studio Saru Science, I think is the name. I wonder if their studio is in Mitaka as well. Because Mitaka is is a pretty nice place. It's like, From where I live to downtown Tokyo, when you take an express train, express train only stops at certain stations. Mitaka is one of the stations that stops at. And like Mitaka is kind of like this interesting cutoff point. So anything east of Mitaka, you're getting into like the full on Tokyo metropolis. Everything west of Mitaka is more suburban. And like Mitaka is kind of like that the edge mm. but a pretty cool place it's got a lot of greenery too so like it prides itself as a city as like being a very green city and is very like keen on 
presenting itself as this like green image. And so I thought the naming of the professor was like very consistent with like the image the city tries to project of itself is like being very green and very friendly. <laughs> so yeah, that just, that was in the back of my mind yet for, for better, or for worse. Every time I heard him say me, me sensei in, in Japanese, I'm like, city me talk came to my mind that kind of probably took away from some of my enjoyment hmm. no, uh, makes, okay makes sense and seems deliberate all right well, let's keep moving um so we can get through the last couple episodes here we'll talk the elder next mm-hmm. um ryan your very first note is something i absolutely agree with which is that it's very obi-wan qui-gon relationship vibes and uh i think also obi-wan and anakin then but uh mm-hmm. prequel jedi mentor mentee mm-hmm. relationships uh relationship vibes is what uh is core to this story the elder um and uh yeah i don't know if you well i'm sure you remember ryan when we were talking about the bad batch I, I always loved like oh these titles have like multiple meanings or uh maybe uh mandalorian too maybe more so mandalorian actually now mm-hmm. that i say that out loud but <laughs> yeah i feel like this uh obviously this is a title that has uh multiple uh meanings or you know is multi-layered meaning to this mm-hmm. title um as well so yeah. uh yeah but layers. uh yeah really cool story um about uh a mentor a mentee and uh, a sith character or a, a dark side character um and uh very much you know one of those uh young jedi uh padawan characters who is uh, eager for excitement and adventure right and then the uh the uh, calmer, uh, more, uh, you know, kind of slow paced, um, wiser, older Jedi. Um, and, uh, you know, it, uh, it takes some turns. Um, there's a, a confrontation first between the younger Jedi and the, uh, the elder, uh, Sith character, um, doesn't go super well for, uh, the light side there. And, uh, and then the, um, the, uh, the elder Jedi, of course, um, ends up being victorious over this, this, uh, the Sith character. Um, I thought for sure the younger Jedi was a goner. Um, turns out he's not. So, um, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's an overall, uh, kind of happy ending or, um, positive, uh, kind of conclusion for these characters. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, another great one. Um, it's probably, definitely more of a traditional star Wars kind of story than, than a lot of the other ones. Right. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, it definitely felt very, the prequel vibe was very, very strong in this. And I thought, yeah, the Elder was more of like a Qui-Gon figure mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Padawan Don. And I, I like the note, I don't know about a Jedi named Don. Mm-hmm. So in English, we're going to say Dan. Right. Very obviously. But in Japanese, it said Don. And so when I heard Don, I instantly thought of like Kendo. There's Shodan, mm-hmm. Nidan, Sandan, Yondan, and all the way up to like Nanadan. And so I thought I didn't have the English because I mean I was watching it in Japanese. I, I tried I tried with each of these to watch it in English dub, and after a couple minutes of English dub, I just gave up. I'm like, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And went back to the Japanese. And so when they're saying the character's name in Japanese, it's like Don, Don. And then 
instantly I thought of those different levels, like any martial art, you have this level of Dawn. And so like with Padawan, I, I was like, well, this, maybe this kind of works. It's kind of like reinforcing like, okay, so he's at this level now. And then the very, the end conversation of this, of this court where the older Jedi is telling him, well, you're going to get stronger. And I was thinking, okay, so he's going to go up to the next level of Don and the next level of Don and the next mm-hmm. And so maybe he'll get to a point where his age and his ability are perfectly matched. And that I think is where the elder is standing in this episode. His, his master is that perfect balance of skill and experience. And whereas like the Sith person that he confronted had all the experience and all the skill, but he didn't have his balance was out of whack now because he was too old. So in that sense, I thought the name was, was, I wasn't hearing it as Dan. I was singing it as Don. So it didn't, didn't throw me off as much, but, uh, yeah, so I think like I kind of put that in uh my notes like sort of as a joke. Um but it's it is really it is really interesting um when you bring in the martial arts um side of it. Um I'm very uh unfamiliar with like I have very little understanding of like proper martial arts, but I did uh play fighting games pretty heavily um, in the the late 90s, early 2000s. And two things kind of stick out to me. Um, I was a big uh, virtual fighter player. And I was about to ask that. You do Kumite <laughs> mode and you go up in the dons, right? Yep, yep. And that's where I was initially exposed to, um, you know, the, ter- the term Don. And then I also, like, simultaneously, that was... Um, you know, in the in the mid to late nineties, that was when uh, Street Fighter introduced uh, the character character Hibiki Dan, and mm. then and like he is interesting just because of I we do not need to get into Street Fighter lore uh, <laughs> right now. That's <laughs> the last thing we need on uh you know on a time crunch here. But um, he's like sort of a joke character, but also like sort of like a like an underdog, like upcoming character. And I've always wondered if it is like supposed, if his name, cause like Westerners always called him Dan and that was just how he was referred to. But I wonder if like he is like, if that's supposed to be Don. I think and that's it is. like, I think it is. Yeah. Um, so that's just, that's just an interesting uh, element of it. But I do think that uh, name was, uh, I, I, I think there absolutely should not be a Jedi character uh, named Dan. Uh, because no, I, no, no. you have to I think say it, that, Don. Yeah, I think that uh, that just makes uh, me think of our friend Dan, who is also a big Star Wars fan, but also would probably agree that Jedi should not be named Dan. Um, I think, like uh, John, something I know you've always uh, talked about is you know when there's just all those uh, dudes in mm, uh, I hate it yeah in cloths uh, in ponchos in the Genosis battle in mm. Attack of the Clones like I I think we can start referring to them as Dan's uh, yeah yeah we should start calling them Dan's yeah all <laughs> yeah. those people that took off their like baggy Union Bay jeans and their white. Uh, 
their their white New Balance sneakers from from Kohl's, and then like just put on a Jedi robe and like, oh well, hey, accept them as Jedi at the end of Attack yeah, of the Clones. Yeah, but bunch of dance in there. All Jedi yeah. dance, yes. So, uh, anyways, but on a more serious note, I think uh, this episode really captures so much of what I love about Star Wars, and I think these things that I love from Star Wars come from George Lucas's appreciation and understanding of uh, Eastern philosophy um, where it is like, I think Qui-Gon in general feels like a very um, Eastern character Mm. to me. Um, You know, I call him Qui-Gon Zen because that's what he is. Perfect. Yep. That's, that's really good. Um, And I think, uh, yeah, the, the Qui-Gon vibes were so strong here. Um, just like these little, uh, you know, the, the wisdom he's impart the, the elder Jedi is, um, imparting here. And I think the, the story being told, like, and I love this conversation that he has with Don about how, you know, power only lasts so long like no one is powerful forever like you have this a a time in your life when you are at your most powerful and for some people that's you know at different times that it's at different levels but time always wins like eventually the most the most powerful people they still get old they get frail and they die like no matter how much you know pow- power whether it be physical power you know social status wealth anything like these people still get old frail and die and i think that being kind of like the the resonant theme here and like him being like yeah like we won the day here this uh this elder char- sith character is gone but my power's on the decline. Yours is rising, but eventually you are going to peak, you're going to plateau, and then, you know, the cycle continues for you as well. And I think just that whole, you know, just those philosophical elements being, like, taught through this, you know, story of, like, dudes in a field fighting with laser swords, I Mm. think is just so perfectly what i what i love about star wars i agree uh very well said and uh the cycle must continue as as far as the episode goes too so i'm going to push us through the lightning round here of the last two episodes um and and i hate to do this because lop and ocho this is an episode where like seeing the footage I was like, ah, oh, this would be one of my least favorite. Look at that furry character. I'm not going to be into this. And it turns out Lop and Ocho, um, I'm probably pronouncing both those names incorrectly, uh, but I loved... Lop and Lop Ocho. Ooh. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I will... Um... Ocho, Ocho actually means, when you look at the kanji, mm. red, red butterfly. Hmm. Okay. Now, was that the uh, older sister character? Who the older sister character? Yes. Oh yeah, I love it. Okay, yeah, because she transforms, doesn't she, uh, in this episode? And by the end, she and is, she does uh, the red on by her eyes. Oh yeah. Oh. And wow. the kanji, the kanji for that type of red, mm-hmm. 
is the red that she does by her eyes. And so oh. I, I kind of like seeing her name written in kanji. It is great foreshadowing. Yeah. Mm, that's so <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I adored this episode. I thought it was amazing. Um, I actually loved the way it looked and, uh, I would have guessed based again on the footage in the trailer. Um, I would have guessed like, oh, this is going to be one where the visual approach is going to be a problem for me. No, not at all. I thought this was beautifully, um, animated and, um, God, I, I love this episode. For me, I thought personally it was the most beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a great story, a quintessential Star Wars story, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 use of the uh, the hologram, um, you know, um, kind of returning to that at the end, and that, yeah. that broke my heart. The, yeah, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. droid. Oh gosh, that was and the determination of like, no, no, I'm gonna. And this is something we saw in a couple of these episodes, but uh, or at least two of them. Uh, the determination of like, nope, I'm not gonna let this person be consumed by the dark side. Like, I am not gonna give up on them. It was really explicit in this episode, but uh, I, I, I like that. I, I like it when when Star Wars uh, swings big as far as the uh, the the morality play of it all. And uh, yeah, I, I love this. Yeah. Also, quintessential Yakuza story. Oh uh, yeah. I, t- yeah. I told you Yakuza were going to come back because uh, Yasaburo is like a Yakuza boss. Yeah, is a family. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, they talk about that in behind the scenes feature and, too. And the, did you did you watch it in, in Japanese? Right, I did. Yeah, I watched okay. all of them in Japanese. Okay. Did you hear them say Jingi? A lot of times, is Jingi this like sense of chivalry? All right. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The character Yasaburo, the way he was drawn and the way he speaks reminded me so much of sony chiba in movies from the 70s and also he did he did um yagyu jube which was a samurai that had one eye and had a patch Mm -hmm. the second i saw yasaburo and i heard him speak in japanese and then when he said jingi like constant times there was these films that sony chibi did was a jingi national tatakai uh, fight bereft of uh, uh, struggle bereft of chivalry is like what it'd be translated to in English. Mm. And I was like, oh my god, this is like Sony Chiba put into an anime. <laughs> and it, and the way he spoke in Japanese was a very like it wasn't standard Japanese, it was like, uh, which dialect was it? It wasn't Kansai Ben, it was, um more of like shikoku like um mm. the way the way he was like kureya or like onigemas onige instead of onigaishimasu mm-hmm. he's like onigemas it was just it, you lost all of that in the english dub and like mm. his, he was so this is the one where if i had to tell people you must absolutely watch it in japanese would be yeah. this one it was beautiful it's just chef's kiss i loved it (laughs) yeah yeah and i think the um i think what really kind of clued me in on like the 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 yakuza elements was just the 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 adoption 
yes. part of it, which is something um, yep. you see in Yakuza films. It's something that happens in actual Yakuza families. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it adds to the complexity of like Yakuza who are, are they're not the mafia. Like I think no. like people, uh, you know, always kind of, you know, tie those things together and be like, Oh yeah, that's, it's an exact parallel. It is absolutely not. Um, and, uh, they're it's Yakuza are so complicated. And I think the way we've kind of like seen them, um, at least in the West and, um, Dave, I'm not sure like how clued in you are on this, um, not being here is, uh, in recent years, the uh, Yakuza games from Sega have oh, like, yeah. had a huge rise in popularity um, here. And um, of the ones I've played, every single one, the core plot is around um, in a, in someone being adopted yep. um, by... I, I played the first two. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Kiru in those kiryu kiryu in those games uh, is sort of adopted by um you know a yakuza boss and he would go on to in the later games to um basically kind of like run an orphanage and like adopt a lot of like children and stuff Mm -hmm. and like do kind of the same thing and then in the most recent one um like a dragon is kind of the same um, sort of premise where the main character is wow they called it like yeah. a dragon because that's what the japanese titles have been throughout the entire series yes yep you got go toku it's as of the dragon yeah they uh you know they uh because it's kind of like a reboot new um some new characters sort of um yeah. kind of thing so yeah that's uh, yeah that's really the yakuza taken outcast yep the unwanted of society and you're you're definitely right about that and then like the loyalty dynamics and just dram- potential for dramatic storytelling is yeah. just it's so perfect it's right there well and, and like one thing i mean she's a very cute character lop she's mm-hmm. a rabbit and stuff but she's alien yeah she's not from that world and she's adopted by these Yakuza family. And when I saw that, I instantly thought of Zainichi. Do you know what Zainichi are? I do not. Zainichi are Koreans born in Japan. Oh, okay. And Zainichi can kind of have um, racial discrimination mm-hmm. implications because I'll try to keep this short. Japan annexed Korea at the beginning of the 20th century in their colonial aspirations in Asia. Mm-hmm. And they forced Koreans to learn Japanese. They brought a lot of Korean, a lot of Koreans came to Japan and they brought a lot of them to Japan during the war. Some even fought with the Japanese army during world war two. They took Japanese names. They were considered citizens of the empire. But then after the war, they lost that status. And they and so even though they were brought to Japan, born and raised in Japan, they don't have Japanese status because they're not Japanese by blood. Mm-hmm. They are Korean. And, they, and so they're called Zainichi, which literally translates to foreigners just living in Japan. But it's a term used exclusively for 
Korean born, uh, Jap- Jap- Japanese born Koreans. And so when I saw Lop and she gets adopted, that is so consistent because you look at Yakuza members today and a lot of them come from the ranks of Zainichi of Japanese born Koreans. And so Lop is like, she's very cute, but she fits the mold of an outsider, an alien brought to a world. I mean, this was like, excuse me, like fucking World War II Japan, taking mm-hmm. Koreans, bringing them to Japan to do work in development and getting the Japanese economy going. That's Lop. Her and her parents are brought to this world to do development of the empire. Japan was mm-hmm. an empire at that time. And then she gets thrown out into the streets and she's picked up by what? Yakuza. I mean, it was, it blew me away to see. And it's it's cleverly disguised in a very cute form, but it's mm-hmm. a very ugly part of Japanese history that is thrown right in the face of the viewer. I don't know if the Western audience is going to catch it, but the Japanese audience will definitely, I don't know if they're going to talk about it, but anybody mm-hmm. who knows that history is going to be like, whoa, <laughs> That hits home. Yeah. Wow. Um, That is fascinating. Um, Yeah. And something that uh, I never would have picked up on. I'm pretty confident um, almost all of our uh, audience would never have picked up on. So, um, again, it's like incredible to have you here, Dave, to talk about these. Uh, We've got one more Mm -hmm. to talk about. um, Akakiri. Akakiri. Uh, It means it means red fog or red mist in Japanese. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, Which is very fitting because the entire episode is like shaded in red. Yeah. 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 And then, and then the final moments too are just like mm-hmm. overwhelmed by red fog. Right. So um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, another, yeah. Incredible uh, example of one of these star Wars visions um, shorts and uh, you know, wrestling with, uh, with very, uh, very, um, traditional kind of star Wars ideas, but, uh, in a, in a very unique and, and, and interesting, uh, way, I think, you know, the final, I mean, the, the episode is great, you know, from beginning to end. Um, it's, it's very visually striking as most of these episodes are. Um, but to me, it was all about that, that, uh, climactic scene and, uh, you know, the, the echoes of the, uh, the empire or the, uh, the emperor of Palpatine invader, um, and the way the uh, Sith character was able to manipulate the emotions of um, of the I, I, I forget the character's name there, but uh, the Jedi character, uh, you know, who um, who chooses to work with that Sith or or you know, kind of uh, place himself at the the mercy of that Sith in order to save um, the the female character there. Uh, I thought it was it was amazing. Yeah, I think like what I have in my notes is this uh the story is hidden fortress mm-hmm. and then it becomes revenge of the Sith. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, that's yeah. perfect. I mean, that's perfect. That's exactly I couldn't is the best way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, and it has the the R2 and C3PO <laughs> characters, right, that are mm-hmm. acting as the <laughs> the Oh gosh, uh, the like, oh, no way you're going to get me to do that. Oh, we'll pay you a little bit more. Uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all coming full circle uh Mm -hmm. you know r2 and 3po were inspired by kurosawa's hidden fortress and here um you know here they are in 
you know, in anime form. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't even know if I should bring this up in the interest of time, but uh, <laughs> my my traditional Star Wars or my very, you know, like mainstream Star Wars uh, oriented brain um, was uh, it was a little discordant for me at the end when it was like the Sith character kind of used that power to heal um, mm-hmm. the uh, the dying character and, and bring her back um, only because like my interpretation, I mean, that's the, the Grogu in Mandalorian and, you know, Ray and, and, and ben, ben move from um, Rise, Rise of Skywalker. Skywalker. Yeah. Uh, to me that, that, that whole thing, like it, it is totally all about selflessness. Like that, if, if that Jedi power had a name, it's, it's like the power of selflessness, right? You give up some of your life force, um, some of your force, your literal force to save someone else. And I feel like the way it was implemented in both Mandalorian and Rise of Skywalker, it was, that's what it is. It's an act of kindness and selflessness. Um, and you know, it's fine. Hey, we've been talking, you know, throughout this episode about how, Hey, things don't have to be so black and white or whatever. Um, and I guess my brain just is not <laughs> quite as uh, good at orienting that way. But, mm. um, like for me, it's like, uh, I, I, I kind of like that traditional star Wars idea of like, well, the dark side characters, they couldn't, they couldn't do the things <laughs> that the light side characters do because it's not within their nature and it's not within the way they, you know, use the force. And I love, um, you know, the fact that Palpatine, it's like the thing he wants more than anything is to, you know, cheat death or whatever. And I mean, he doesn't really ever do it. I mean, he does and he doesn't, you know, but it's like, mm-hmm. I just like that power being a sort of a, a, a light side thing. Um, but, you know, obviously it's not canon and I don't even really care about that. And, you know, it's it's whatever. But um, it was just one of those things where it did. It did I'm not saying that, like, I enjoyed the episode less because of it or anything. I mm-hmm. just it, it's like thought provoking to me, you know, yeah. the idea it, that, it is, uh, it, that that character could do that. It is very thought provoking because, as you said, it's in Rogu's case and in, La- and in The Rise of Skywalker, it's done out of selflessness. But here we see both the selfless element and the selfish elements mm-hmm. blended. Mm. So the Sith person is using that power to get what she wants, which is that Jedi guy. She wants a new apprentice. So she uses that power to get him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the reverse is true is he realizes that the only way he's going to save the one he loves is to do something that he hates. And that is to accept the hand from that Sith person to take advantage of her power to save the person he loves at the expense of him not being able to be with her again. And so it, it's kind of like a reef. And that's why I love how Ryan wrote that it's revenge of the Sith. It's like another way that revenge of the Sith could have played out where Anakin does save Padme, but he never is with her again. Mm. And but it, it, it layers all that. It makes it very ambiguous. And so that's, yeah, that's why, that. sorry, Dave, this is one of those episodes where it's like, it feels like I need to see the sequel. You know what I mean? Yes. I like, yeah. I need to see where the mm-hmm. story goes, you know, um, which exactly. is a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like if Palpatine had actually delivered, on what he promised Anakin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what this is. Yeah. Um, and then... That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Now it's happened. And, you know, I personally, I love 
Um, I almost don't want a sequel because I love the kind of like dark ambiguity. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about this earlier, like what a way to like end the series. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I also kind of love um, that it ended with like this really dark, ambiguous moment because like, obviously things like this don't come without a cost. And I love that that's just there to like simmer in the viewer's head <laughs> and that it's not a happy ending that it is like this, like you, you need to think about this. Was that the right choice? Was it not? What choice would you have made? And just kind of like dwell on that. Like, I think it was a really powerful way to end the series. I I agree. Like these last three episodes, as as you said, we could probably talk about this. And I, I think specifically these last three episodes are definitely worth revisiting because there's just so, so much packed into them. And especially, I mean, I, I said earlier, maybe Tatooine Rhapsody w- would have been another alternative for ending this to keep people up on a high note. But now after hearing you say that ending on a kind of somber note, but leaving so much up to the audience to ponder the Oh, just just personally, I, I I kind of lean to more of that because I'm just artistically more inclined to that type of art where mm. I like being left unsettled mm-hmm. and having to to chaw on something and really mull over it instead of like what what's a really good film example? Um, I don't know if you guys ever saw it. It's called The Red Violin. It was made in no. 1999. And it's a story of this violin that passes through people's different hands of people. It ends on kind of a positive note, but the story itself has a lot of really. The way it ends is one character literally commits a crime for arguably good outcome. Hmm. And so when the movie ends, you're, you're like, yeah, I, I like what he did, but then you have to reconcile the fact that this guy committed outright theft to give a gift to somebody. Mm. And the way that Akakiri ended brought to mind my initial reactions to the movie, the red violin It was made in 1999. It actually, it, it, it kind of ties into star Wars because Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie and he plays a role that you would never expect Samuel L. Jackson to play. Interesting. It's very out of character for him, but he does an excellent job. It's a hope. Is a it's a multinational film made between Canada, Quebec, um, Italy, Austria, China, and England. Huh. Made by a Quebecois director, won an Oscar for best score. But the vibes of Akakiri at the end, and that kind of like doing, committing a sin for a better good really 
I, I like what you said about that, Ryan. Just, just like leaving that in such a such a unsettling ambiguity was probably artistically the best choice. Yeah, and I usually prefer the ambiguous endings as well. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, can they, whatever story follows, will it be, you know, as satisfying as, you know, um, just, or I guess as compelling, because satisfying is probably not the right word to describe the ending here, but will it be as compelling? And, um, you know, yeah, it may not be, it may not be. But uh, at the same time, it's like, you know, I don't know. It, it's so interesting. Like, what would have happened? What what would Anakin's journey been if Palpatine actually had come through and saved Padme, um, or not killed Padme, or however you view it? You know, whatever. <laughs> if, if things yeah. hadn't gone down the way they did, um, you know, what would that have been like? And it's it's I don't know because Anakin is so he does seem so like okay, I've I've actually made the commitment to turn to the dark side, and this character, you know, there is a darkness in in you know his final moments and the way he behaves and everything but at the same time it also just feels like sort of like i did this for you you know i had to do this for you and anakin would say things like that too but um i guess we watched him go off and kill younglings and we haven't seen this this character do anything like that yet so it's it's like there's still a lot of hope i feel like that this this character could could uh come back around or you know things would things would change for this character so um but uh yeah, I think we should. I think we should wrap it up there. Um, but uh, with with uh, with the uh, the potential to come back and talk about some uh, Star Wars visions in the future, um, Ronan is releasing soon. So um, you know, definitely yeah. we'll, be, we'll be discussing that um, at some point soon. Yeah, Dave, will might... you be able to track that down? I'm gonna check. I, I mean, I have an Amazon America, US Amazon account, and in, in Japan. Japanese Amazon account. So, uh, but I'm pretty sure it'll probably the English version will probably be sold through Amazon Japan as well. So, yeah. Or, or there's hmm. there's some big bookstores in Central Tokyo where they sell a lot of um ordered books. Hmm. So, I mean, I could I've sometimes bought like the English version of National Geographic, some of those big cuz that's one book I would really 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 like to read cuz I'm curious. Yeah. I think the author is a Japanese American. Yep, because her 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 middle name is Mieko. Mm-hmm. I've, I I kind of cringe because I hear so many people butcher her name. They're they're calling her Mieko, but it's Mieko. Yeah, I, I. That's probably of all the Star Wars books I want to read. That's definitely one I really. I won't wait for the Japanese translation and try to get that soon as i can yeah yeah and then uh you know you never know we maybe we'll hear about uh, uh more star wars visions uh projects in the future i think uh an art so. of book or or making of book of some kind could be really cool um and potentially mm-hmm. more more content for disney plus would be awesome so uh we'll see about that but uh for now we've got to we've got to wrap it up here so thanks uh very much for listening uh dave again thank you so much for for joining us for this episode because uh there is uh, so much that you were able to clue me mm-hmm. in on at least that i would have had no idea about and uh really just enriches my my uh my understanding of these episodes so i'm looking forward to going back and watching them again after uh after this discussion for sure uh Glad to help <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah thank you dave yeah so 
until next time, you can find uh, everything we do at blockaderunnerpodcast.com. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us and share your thoughts on visions, um, the email is blockaderunnerpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can uh, follow the show, message the show on Twitter at Blockade Run. Ryan, you are on Twitter at? Via Malay, V-A-Y-A-M-A-L-A-Y. Uh, and Dave, did you want to share your Twitter? Uh, yeah, my Twitter is, I believe, at Norsk Akiruno, N-O-R-S-K-A-K-I-R-U-N-O. I mean, it's just where I live here in Western Tokyo. Actually, I'm going to pull it up real quick just to make sure people can. That was correct. That, that is correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's yep, correct. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's where I'm at. And if you yeah. go there, you there should be a link to my uh, bilingual blog in the profile. So mm. where I write yeah. in Japanese, English, a lot about there's most, I would say the majority of my articles are about uh, Japanese influences in star Wars. And mm-hmm. yeah, that I have uh, observed in my many years of life here. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy reading your your posts and your tweets and translations, um, and I think everyone should definitely check those out. Absolutely, I got something Miyazaki related coming soon. Hopefully, uh, within the next month or so, I'm translating awesome. some stuff from awesome. Miyazaki's uh, interviews right now. So, pretty pretty. <laughs> blew me away when I was reading it. Nice. All right, cool. Uh, so, yeah, thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Blockade Runner podcast. We are all the Republic. <laughs> <laughs>